It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Las Vegas has always been the city of neon, and though most of those world-famous signs are gone from the new Las Vegas, many now reside in the Neon Museum. We know what that neon represented about Las Vegas, but what do we know of the life underneath the neon, the life below the city itself? My guest is Matthew O'Brien, Matt O'Brien as we know him, author of Dark Days, Bright Nights, Surviving the Las Vegas Storm Drains, published by Central Recovery Press. It's a sequel to his book Beneath the Neon, and available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Matt O'Brien, go to BeneathTheNeon.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at BeneathTheNeon. And Matt, welcome back to the show. Hey, good to talk to you, Ira. How are you? Good, good. And you, of course, are now residing in El Salvador, which is an interesting change for you. You're teaching there. Yeah, actually, after living in Las Vegas for 20 years, uh, a little more than three years ago, I got the opportunity to teach and write in Central America, El Salvador. And I taught for three years at a prep school there. It's English language prep school called Escuela Americana, the American school. And I did that. It basically was teaching high school, which three years was kind of my max for that. So, but I, I'm still living in San Salvador as a freelance writer, editor, and teacher, and actually really enjoying it. Good. I mentioned in the beginning about your first book, which I remember you came in and we talked about it at the time. And this is, in essence, a follow-up to it, a more optimistic look, I think, in terms of people that have come up from the drains or from the tunnels and their stories. So tell us a little bit, for our listeners who may not know the first book, what prompted you to write the first book, and then what prompted you to write the second book, which is the one we're talking about now, The yeah, Dark, so, Dark Days. Yeah, so the first Bright book, it, it, it dates back quite a while to my time at Las Vegas City Life newspaper. And it was, it was the spring of 2002, I read about a murderer, Timmy T.J. Weber, who had been on the run and had used the underground flood channels of Las Vegas to evade the police. And as editor of City Life, that gave me the idea, wow, I wonder what's down in these tunnels, what, what this guy may be experienced down there. So that's how it started. I went down with another writer for City Life, Josh Ellis, and we, wrote, we co-wrote two stories uh, about our adventures in the tunnels in City Life. And, and they were well-received. They went viral before that term was really popular. And so I decided to keep kind of exploring the tunnels and to use the two stories that Josh and I co-wrote as background for a book, Beneath the Neon, and that came out in 2007, so it's been a while. This isn't a direct sequel, this latest book, Dark Days, Bright Nights, as you said, it's more of a follow-up. Beneath the Neon was a first-person kind of narrative adventure about me for the first time really going down into these these long dark tunnels and exploring them and interviewing the homeless people I discovered down there kind of a dark book you know literally and figuratively but what I discovered over the years is that a lot of people made it out of these underground flood channels got off the drugs got jobs reunited with family and I kept in touch with a lot of these people and they would share their stories with me you know in person over coffee or through through Messenger, over the phone. 
And I was really struck by how powerful their tales were, you know, their, their backgrounds and how they ended up homeless and what their life was like in the tunnel. And just as much so, kind of how they got out of the tunnels, how they got clean, uh, what are their hopes for the future. So I felt kind of obligated to tell the full story of the, of the tunnels and the people who lived down there. Well, the whole story is fascinating, Matt. Just before we get into the actual personalities and people that you talk to, describe for us what the tunnels are like, because I don't think most people realize that these tunnels and drains are underneath Las Vegas. Certainly people listening to us from around the world have no sense in most cases that there does exist life underneath Las Vegas. What are these tunnels and drains about? How did they form initially? And then what were your initial impressions when you went into the tunnel for the first time? Yeah, it might seem a little odd to people who know Vegas and know it's one of the driest major metro cities in the world that it would have flood channels. But as locals know, we get quite a bit of flooding here, and it really hit hard in the early 80s. You, you probably recall this. There were a few big floods that really damaged the Strip in the early 80s. So the politicians and the casino owners figured out we have to do something to protect the casino properties. So the Clark County Regional Flood Control District was founded in the mid-80s, and the goal of that was to floodproof the valley to start building flood channels. There weren't really many storm drains here at the time, just kind of natural washes. So it, it really started just then in the mid-80s where they, like, oh, they started building more and more channels as the city grew. And what we have now is more than 600 miles of flood channels in the Las Vegas Valley, about half of which are underground. So these are concrete tunnels that it, it's not sewage, it's just for flood control. When it rains, the water drains down into these tunnels and, and hopefully doesn't you know, disrupt the streets and, and the housing properties and the casinos here. Some of these tunnels you know, just go underneath the street and open back up. Some of them go for five or six miles underground. Some of them are quite small, you know, maybe four feet high, four feet wide. And then there's some that you could drive a 18-wheeler through. I mean, literally 20 to 30 feet tall and 20, 30 feet wide. So, yeah, that's, that's the essence. What was your impression when you first went in? Because you initially had assigned this to Josh Ellis to cover the story, but you eventually went into the drains and the tunnels yourself. So what was that first impression of that environment for you? Yeah, it, at the time as editor of City Life, I didn't really have much free time to go, <laughs> and, and maybe the inclination either to go wandering around these sewers, as I called them then. I didn't even know the distinction between an underground flood channel and a sewer and that they were the systems were separate here. But then Josh had walked one tunnel with a friend and he reported back to me on that. He, he you know, was kind of swampy and there was some crawfish in the tunnel. And he would look up the manhole shafts and see clothing that, that homeless people ab above ground had stored down in there. And it sounded pretty promising and intriguing, but Josh didn't have a car at the time. So I said, look, uh, I'll pick you up this weekend and drive you around a few of these tunnels. And the plan for me wasn't to actually go in. It was to drive Josh around to help him, you know, report the story himself. But, you know, of course, once I started driving him around and, and going to the tunnels with him, I ended up going in with them and exploring the tunnels with him. 
And what was your impression when you first went in? The impression when I first went in was that uh, we, we would kind of stand at the inlets or outlets, the entrances and exits of the tunnels and, and look in, you know, and maybe peek in and we would kind of even yell in, yo, you know, anyone here as if they were going to say, yeah, come, come on in, guys. So we didn't really know anything about the environment. And then we, we started creeping in you know, with our flashlights, and I had a golf club, and he was carrying a big knife. We were, we were really on edge. Uh, we had seen some pretty wild stuff above ground in daylight in Las Vegas, and we couldn't imagine what might be going on in these dark, discreet underground flood channels. But once you got in there and you encountered people, did your perspective change? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we, when we stumbled upon the first homeless camp down there, we were both just in shock. We, you know, it was not common knowledge at the time that we're, people were living down there. We, we were expecting to find debris down there, maybe some graffiti, some stray animals, but we weren't expecting to find hundreds of people living down in there. So we were, we were literally speechless at the time. But then, you know, we would kind of try to engage these people in conversations and got to know them a little bit. When I went back down on my own to research the book Beneath the Neon, I went down with a tape recorder, wasn't carrying a golf club. I, I tried to blend into the environment a little bit more. And I put a little more focus on the interviews with the homeless people down there. Some of them I would speak to for two, three hours and then come back for follow-up interviews. And I really got to know these people. They, you know, really opened up their homes to me, literally. So I would come back and give them water or food or just, you know, lend them an ear, just listen to them and not judge them. These people turned out to be quite interesting. I wrote in the intro to Dark Days, Bright Nights, I mentioned that in 20 years in Las Vegas, the people I met in the underground flood channels turned out to be some of my best friends and some of the most trusted intellectual people that I met here, which was not meant to be a slight on Las Vegas. It was more a compliment to the people down there. I want to talk about some of these interesting people that you have connected with and continue to retain a connection with, but I want to go a little bit more into the tunnels themselves. When you found these groups of people, did they tell you how they found each other or how they decided to go into the tunnels? Yeah, so the people down in there, and people always ask me how many people live down in there, and online you'll see anywhere from two to 300 to 1,500 to 2,000 people living in the tunnels. It's tough to gauge that number because there's so many tunnels spread throughout the whole valley, and it's such a transient population. But we can safely say that hundreds of people live in the underground flood channels. Some of them, you know, live on their own. For instance, if there's a storm drain that has six tunnels leading under a street, you might have six individual camps, one in each tunnel. But you will also have pretty large communities down there. We've stumbled upon groups of 15, 20, 25 people living together and sharing drugs, uh, sharing foods, sharing sexual partners, you know, of just kind of looking out for each other in, in much the same way that an above-ground community would uh, look out for each other. There's disputes, you know, there's neighbors you don't like, there's some you do. But generally what I see in times of need down there, if there's a big flood, for instance, they tend to come together, band together, and really help each other out. Is there a form of government underneath 
Las Vegas? In other words, these groups that come together and help each other out, as you just mentioned, do they form a quasi-state or government to regulate some of the activities that are needed to be regulated even in that situation? They do, and there, there's unwritten rules and even written rules that I've seen, you know, on the walls down there, you know, a list of rules. But some of the basic rules is kind of, I've discovered over the years and explained in dark days, bright nights, or you don't enter anyone else's camp without their permission. Again, much like you wouldn't walk into your neighbor's home above ground without permission. Same rule apply. If you score, you know, that could be money or drugs. You're expected to share it with the community. And if you don't, you'll get a lot of resentment or possibly worse. There's been beatings down there and even murders related to people not sharing the wealth, so to speak. And, you know, you'll also have, there's a tunnel not too far from the Welcome to Fabulous Las Vegas sign. And there was a guy down there named Craig, actually a short guy, but he'd been down in this tunnel for many years and they called him the mayor. That was his nickname. And he considered himself the mayor, the top official in the tunnel because of seniority. He wasn't the most physical person down there. A lot of times that dictates who the leaders are, who the toughest, roughest person is down there. But yeah, certain tunnels have, have leaders, people that represent the group, people that call the shots. As you probably know, after Beneath the Neon came out, I would take media down into the tunnels occasionally. Right. And I would usually go in by myself first to see who was around and see if it was okay if I bought a media crew in. And a lot of times I would have to report to, you know, one person down there would be very influential in that decision. One person could say yes or no and kind of overrule anyone else's opinions there. So it's that's that there is a hierarchy and there there are rules. Well, let's take a break then. My guest, Matt O'Brien, is author of Dark Days, Bright Nights, Surviving the Las Vegas Storm Drains. It's published by Central Recovery Press. It's a follow-up to his book, Beneath the Neon, and available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Matt O'Brien, go to BeneathTheNeon.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at BeneathTheNeon. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. You are an adventurer, and your adventure awaits right around the corner at the Springs Preserve. Here, everyone can explore hiking and bike trails, participate in hands-on activities and classes, jump on a train ride, wander through a botanical garden, and more. Visit springspreserve.org. Now, let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with Matt O'Brien. He's author of Dark Days, Bright Nights, Surviving the Las Vegas Storm Drains, published by Central Recovery Press. It's a follow-up to his book, Beneath the Neon, and available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Matt O'Brien, go to BeneathTheNeon.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at BeneathTheNeon. And Matt, once you wrote the book, the original book, and then you moved to El Salvador, you decided to write this follow-up. Why? What was it about it? You were in touch with many of the people, as you mentioned earlier. Was there a common denominator among these people that you were in touch with? You interviewed 36 people between January 2017 and April 2019. Was there something that they all had a common reason for prospering, if that's the term, or coming out of the storm drains? Well, yeah, just to give people a timeline, Beneath the Neon came out in 2007, 
And I started a community project called China Light. It was very grassroots. You know, as I said earlier in our conversation, these people welcomed me into their homes. I wanted to give something back to them. And so Shine a Light was, was me kind of going down with bottled water or, or food or knit caps or socks or underwear, a lot of which had been donated from the community. I was kind of a middleman between people who wanted to help the people in the tunnels and the people in the tunnels themselves. So I would go down and, and kind of befriended the people. And when I got the job offer in Central America and knew I was going to leave Las Vegas, I had about six months. And one of my goals was to interview these people who had made it out. Because like I said, I'd kept in touch with a lot of them. I had been really moved by their stories. I think if there's one common thread between them is that they all had incredible stories of growing up, their backgrounds, their families, how they ended up in Las Vegas, how they discovered the tunnels and how they got out. And not only were their stories incredible, the way they told these stories, Ira, were just mesmerizing. I mean, I, I mentioned this in the intro as well. There's got to be some kind of connection between being homeless and being a great storyteller because of the 36 people I interviewed, all of them have incredible stories and they told them incredibly well. I think it might have to do with the fact that when you're homeless, you have to have kind of a hustle, an angle, a story that you share with everyday citizens to get food, to get money, to get sympathy. And, or maybe, you know, it's that they have a lot of free time and there is that community, almost the, the fireside chats, you know, down there hanging out, telling stories. But um, that really struck me that the, the, the powerful stories and how well told they are. That's interesting. I would think with technology these days, you would probably have people living in those conditions doing a weekly podcast with using <laughs> a cell phone. I wouldn't be surprised. And, and uh, sometimes people are surprised when I tell them that, that people who live in the tunnels, they, you know, they have Facebook pages and they have cell phones and some of them have little computers down there. I've, I've walked into camps where people are watching movies, you know, and occasionally they'll hack into the power system here, find a power outlet nearby and have, you know, even lights and, and power generators down there, stuff like that. Resourcefulness. So camps, I, I should make that point. Yes, you know, I've seen camps, that this same tunnel near the Welcome to Fabulous Las Vegas sign, I saw a man who would literally, his camp was a piece of carpet. He would come home, lie on the carpet, roll himself up in the carpet as like, you know, a, a blanket and sleep in that. And then in that same tunnel, you know, just downstream, I've seen section, what are basically sectional apartments, you know, with beds and sofas, coffee tables, artwork on the walls. Some of the camps are quite sophisticated down there. Fascinating. Earlier, you talked about food and money and social rules and government, etc. But what did they do for medical care? In other words, was part of your mission with Shine a Light and with others to also bring them medical supplies, or how did they handle their medical needs? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not a, you know, a doctor or a medic myself, obviously, but, uh, you know, we would bring bandages and stuff that they could dress their wounds with. But I would also kind of network with nonprofits here who had staff that knew more about that. 
uh, you know, doctors and nurses would reach out to me and occasionally go down to us. The cool thing is that when I left for Central America, I handed Shine a Light off to Freedom House Sober Living, a big nonprofit here, and they made it an official program there. And it's intriguing. One of the guys I interviewed for the book, his street name is Shaggy, but his real name is Paul. Paul, who lived in the tunnels for three years as a heroin addict, is now running Shine a Light with another guy, Robert, who lived in the tunnels. So they're offering a lot of the same stuff I offered, but more of it and on a more consistent basis. Sure, more ins- provide, a more institutional basis. Yeah, they're able to provide direct housing, counseling, where I had to kind of refer people to other organizations. They, they can handle all that directly. So, so now they're going down there, you know, a lot of times with, with people who are professional medics or nurses, or if someone is hurt down there, they can definitely take them to the right place to get fixed. Because generally, you know, on the streets, people end up at UMC, the big public hospital here. And, you know, I've taken and picked up people from the tunnels there who had major surgeries, heart surgeries, organs removed, talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills that the public has to foot. So that's one realization I've come to, you know, with this latest book and all the research I've done down in there. In my estimation, my experience, it's more affordable to house someone and and to help them get sober and to take care of them than to have them being on the streets, dealing with police, medics, ambulances, etc. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Do you think, though, in your research, and as I mentioned earlier, you interviewed for this book, 36 People, do you find that you might tend to romanticize these people and their experiences, or do you stick to the reality of what the situation is? Well, we've talked about my whole background, first going into these tunnels in 2002 and, and discovering the people down there and befriending a lot of them and, and, and founding Shine a Light. And so, look, I am a little bit biased, obviously. I, I, and this is coming from 20 years of experience of, well, more than 20 years of experience of writing about the homeless and knowing the homeless. You know, that, uh, and, and I think my latest book really illustrates this, you know. People come from disadvantaged backgrounds or people end up in bad situations and it's not always their fault. Sometimes it is. Yet what I've always tried to do with a lot of my writing, I think it comes from my background as a journalist, is to be somewhat objective. This latest book, the interviews are in the direct words of the people that I interviewed. It's an oral account of surviving the Las Vegas storm drain. So I set the stories up and I edited the stories but the words are very raw and real and true. I think one advantage I had is that I knew these people and I had earned their trust over the years and they really opened up to me. So what, what I want people to do is to read these unfiltered stories and judge, judge for themselves. Do you think that you learned anything new from these interviews that you didn't know before? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been covering this subject a while. More insight that you received from interviewing these people, not so much from the editing process, but while you talk to them now, compared to when you first became aware of the situation, did you get more insight or were you surprised about something? Was there one person that stood out in terms of the dramatic change that they made in their life? Yeah. What I really wanted to accomplish with this book is a lot of the writing I've done about homeless or that I've, that I've read about the homeless is kind of 
their stories from when they were homeless or right when they got into recovery. Part of my goal with this book is we see homeless people on the street corner panhandling, flying a sign, as they call it. And, and, you know, maybe we wonder, how did this person become homeless? What is their background? So I, the, one of the first questions I asked all these people was, what is your earliest memory? And then I would ask them about their childhood and, and their high school years. And, and I did that all the way through Las Vegas and the tunnels and getting out and then looking at their hopes for the future. So what I really wanted to do is provide a comprehensive look at homelessness, going back to the, the, you know, the person's earliest years, all the way through recovery. And I, and I think that's very enlightening. It was very enlightening to me, and I think it would be to, to readers as well. Did you get a sense of the official reaction, when I say official, governmental reaction to people living in the tunnels? In other words, is it benign neglect? Is it, we've got to get them out of there? Or is it, we'll help them as best we can? What was your sense of talking to official dub? Yeah, well, when I started working on Beneath the Neon, my greatest hope was that this would raise awareness and there would be a nonprofit that would want to help or the government would want to step in. Of course, having lived in Vegas and known the city, my worst fear was that the cops were just going to go down there and sweep as many people out of the tunnels as they could. But what, what I discovered was neither one. It was kind of just people, politicians at least, kind of largely ignoring the issue. And I think Vegas tends to do that a lot, kind of brush off the negative stuff that's um, written about the city and kind of embrace the, the, the more positive stuff at time. And so that, that's what led me to found Shine a Light because nothing else was really, was really done about it. What about the dangers of living in the tunnels and the drains? In, uh, in essence, those tunnels and drains are there for a purpose. So there is a possibility that someone being in there at a certain point in time could lose their life or be seriously injured. It's kind of a weird paradox being down in there because a lot of people go down in there for safety, for protection. Uh, we know how hot it can be above ground in Vegas and how cold too, right? So down in these tunnels, you have some shelter. You have some protection from the elements. Um, you're also, you know, there's a lot of violence against the homeless, right? We've had some pretty prominent cases here where homeless people have been beaten severely or murdered here, just random acts of violence against the homeless. So down in these tunnels, you, you're out of sight, out of mind. But of course, at the same time, we get these huge floods here. One of the many powerful stories in my book was from a guy named Jazz who lived down in the tunnels with his girlfriend, Sharon, and they got hit by a big flood. This was four or five years ago. And they both got washed away, conscious. They were actually talking to each other. And he relayed the story of her, her actually dying in this flood and, and him not being able to save her. So that's one of the main threats down there. You have your, your peace down there, but the problem is that, you know, no one's down there to help you if, if if something goes wrong, if there's a dispute down there with the neighbor, there's been some vicious fights and beatings down there too, and there's no one around to help you or save you. But I get the sense, and we're just about done, but I get the sense of, with this new book that you're optimistic. Yeah. The first two-thirds of the book are a little bit tough to read, you know, about the people growing up and, and the stuff a lot of them went through 
and then becoming homeless, their homeless years. But after I asked them about what was your rock bottom moment in the tunnels, what was your worst moment down there? And you can imagine some of the answers that these people had being set on fire, floods, getting diseases down there where they, they almost lost a limb. Then I turned to the more positive side. How did you get out of the tunnels? What lessons did you learn? You had asked earlier about what did I learn. I asked them all, what can you share with us that others can benefit from? And they had some incredible thoughts on the lessons they learned down there. And all the way through to you know what their life is like now and what their hopes and dreams are for the future. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Matt O'Brien. He's author of Dark Days, Bright Nights, Surviving the Las Vegas Storm Drains, published by Central Recovery Press. It's a follow-up to his book, Beneath the Neon, and available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Matt O'Brien, go to BeneathTheNeon.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at BeneathTheNeon. Matt, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Ara. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Happy Las Vegas!